0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Thomas Doherty, author of the book, Little Lindy is Kidnapped, How the Media Covered the Crime of the Century, published in 2020 by Columbia University Press. When the toddler child of Charles and Ann Lindbergh was reported missing on March 1, 1932, The news media immediately jumped on the story, and it soon became the talk of the country and the world. Tom and I review how the case would become important for newspapers, radio, and newsreels. We also discuss the history of each and how they created new ways to compile their information. Welcome, Tom Doherty. Hi, Tom. How are you today? I'm fine, Joel. How are you? Your book, Little India's kidnapped. How the Media Covered the Crime of the Century, was recently published by Columbia University Press, and I'm glad to speak to you about it. I'm happy to be here.
1: Appreciate the invitation.
0: So you have an extensive list of books and publications that deal with film, media, and other aspects of American culture. But unlike many of the other books on the Lindbergh kidnapping, you're not really studying the crime or the guilt or innocence aspects so much as how the media covered it. And, as you point called it, the crime of the century, which at the time, I think is pretty straight it's pretty obvious because it was we've we've seen these kind of events currently, and there's no question that that was a really good example of probably one of the first multimedia events.
1: Uh, yeah, and that's what attracted me to it. Of course, the uh, the story is intrinsically interesting as a as a crime story. Uh, and it's the criminal case that involved, the most famous beloved man of the century. And when you hear that it sort of sounds like boilerplate because we live in, a, uh, in an age of hyperbole where everything's the biggest, the best, you know the most wonderful. But one of the things I had to do in the book is recapture just the ascendant transcendent stature of Charles Lindbergh in the time that we're talking about, say from 1927, When he makes his historic flight from uh new york to paris alone and then literally overnight uh becomes the uh, most adored man uh on the planet certainly in america and uh from 27 to 32 the, the date of the kidnapping and then to 35 the date of the trial uh he's a figure of such universal adulation that it's very difficult for us to recapture that i don't think there's been any individual person in the 20th century that had that kind of stature so when you think of a lot of crimes that have happened uh, we remember them either because a great artist has uh, devoted his attention to them like say Truman Capote takes what I think you know I don't mean to be you know harsh or callous about it but uh, takes a a murder that, Probably would not be in our popular imagination had he not devoted his artistry to recreating the case of the Clutter family, their murder, and then the uh, uh, the execution of the perpetrators. Or if you take other cases like the Manson murders or uh, O.J. Simpson in the 1990s, most of our relationship to the victims of those crimes is vicarious. Uh, We don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. where with Lindbergh and the Lindbergh baby, everybody in America knew who they are or who they were and had an emotional investment in it. So when you talk about a crime of the century, I guess that would be one of my criteria, that everybody is emotionally involved with it in a way that's not sort of secondhand, not like we're you know looking at a traffic accident at the side of the road. Uh, so that's one of the things that attracted me to it.
0: And, of course, you've been writing extensively for a long time about American popular culture, particularly not just popular, but American culture, and particularly looking at media and film. And you've worked, you're a professor of American studies at Brandeis and a lot of other editing and writing. Uh, What was your personal path to cultural history Seem to be something that interested you so much that it became your life work? Oh, hey, you know, depends on how far you want to go back. Well, um, you know, <laughs> obviously you've been writing for quite a while. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm and, and- well, I, well, I can tell you, Joel, but like, actually
1: uh, I spent my junior year abroad overseas in Japan. And I think when you're overseas and start looking at America from outside the fishbowl, it is, you start seeing things you didn't see when you were inside the fishbowl. And America started really interesting me, uh, interesting me when I saw it from an outsider's perspective. You know, when you saw sort of the impact of American culture, movies, rock music style on a culture like Japan, uh, which, you know, at least traditionally had been a very different, distinct Asian culture of its own. And, uh, you know, you could see the insinuations of America all over Japan. And uh, that's, I think, when I started getting into American culture. Uh uh, seriously in my undergraduate days. And then I went to uh, 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 graduate school at the University of Iowa in the late 70s, uh, early 80s, which was a great time to be there uh, because you had uh, you know, uh, media people in film, you had American studies people, and it was just really, uh, to me, a, a, a rich time uh, for uh, the investigation of America and also uh, the investigation of uh, media because we had a great film society there and uh, uh, still the golden age of TV. And that's sort of how I started getting into America uh, and uh, media and media to me was always a wonderful way to uh, study American history. So you look at a uh, great depression movie as a way of thinking about America in the great depression.
0: It's uh, such a wonderfully vivid window on the past. Well, media history is is a personal interest of mine as well, even though um, film, I mean, we're extensively, this one, is my podcast is New Books and Film, but obviously mm-hmm. Newsreel helps with that. But I've also interviewed other authors about media-related history, so I felt that, uh, that your book really, uh, I found that to be so interesting as far as another example of how we can look at the media to get a better sense of history. Uh, and, of yeah. course, I just read your previous book, Show Trial, which reviewed the beginnings of The Blacklist. And then also one I read just because of the interest in the concept was Hollywood Censor, uh, which looked at Joseph Breen. Now, I granted, those are only two film, two books that you've written, but I think they both gave good examples of the kind of uh, interest you have. And, and the production code is something that I that uh, is a personal interest as well. So like I say, all of these are things that you've done that uh, I think uh, made this to be to, logical to me to be a book I wanted to learn more about. Oh, I appreciate that. The uh, The production code angle is always uh, fascinating.
1: And uh, uh, the story of Joseph Green in particular, which is one of these sort of inside Hollywood stories that A lot of people didn't know about until the 1980s, when the uh, Motion Picture Association of America released the production code files, made them available to scholars, uh, you know, at the uh, at the order of Jack Valenti, who was head of the uh, MPAA at the time. And uh, Valenti said he couldn't think of another major corporation organization that had sort of opened up their files to scholars. I mean, it's something that, you know, the Ford Motor Company doesn't do. Uh, And uh, once we looked at those files, I think a whole generation of scholars saw how influential the code was in determining the kind of uh, moral trajectory of classical Hollywood cinema, and particularly how pivotal this guy Joe Breen was uh, when he was head of the PCA from uh, 1934 to 1954. And uh, I think it's interesting to note in the last 20 or 30 years, people actually know this guy's name and they talk about the Breen office rather than the Hayes office nowadays, because uh, people have a sense of, uh, you know, just how hands-on powerful he was. Uh, I I like to say that I think he's probably, uh, you know, certainly one of the most influential people in 20th century American popular culture. And he probably had final cut over more Hollywood films than anybody in history, because any film that, went into theaters from 34 to 54, basically had to have the approval of Joe
0: Breen to play in a major uh, studio uh, venue. Unfortunately, we don't know as much about how the MPA works these days because they're pretty good about keeping a lot of that secret. There's been a couple of studies and there was one infamous, one documentary about it, yeah. not infamous, but one documentary about it, which I found so fascinating, partly because... You, when you saw what how they put it together it, it you know it's one of those things that kind of control that even now the ratings board can have. Yeah ex- exactly. And uh, you know say
1: what you will about the green office it was pretty much above board like everybody could read the production code. Uh, you sort of knew what the rules were. And the uh, filmmakers operated within a very clear set of standards. So everybody knew what you could do and what you couldn't do. And occasionally you try to slip something through, but there was a, a kind of a rational censorship sense to it. Uh, so today, like, I think when people go to the movies and see something rated R because it has one, you know, obscene word in it, but it's otherwise a very moral film, you kind of wonder what they're doing when they make their judgments
0: Well, anyway, we could talk about that forever, but that's not what we're talking about today. But like I say, I think it it gives me, I think it will give everyone a good example of some of the other work and how it may relate to what we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. So you begin the book by discussing the solo flight and obviously the press coverage right from the beginning that he um, underwent, and I'm going to use that word because yeah. I think it's a good way of putting it, because like many famous people nowadays, uh, uh, Lindbergh was an example of someone who had to early on learn how to deal with the media. Yeah. And it wasn't always uh, very well, obviously. And so how did this first event affect the kind of experiences that he would fall back on when his son was kidnapped? Well, the,
1: When Lindbergh takes off on uh, May 20th, 1927, uh, something remarkable happens uh, because nobody sort of predicted or anticipated that this would be a 33 and a half hour vigil that every American would hold together and that would forever after bind them in a kind of generational solidarity. Uh, And every generation has these kind of moments uh, or in most general, like, You know, my father's generation had Pearl Harbor. I had JFK. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, you know, the kids today are going to have this COVID uh, horror that is going to be their binding generational experience. And oftentimes they're uh, sort of connected to the media. So when he takes off in the morning of May 20th, we don't have radio in the home. By twenty-seven, most Americans don't have a radio a set in their houses. But what we do have is shortwave communication. So the newspaper extras are getting up-to-date reports on Lindbergh. So he takes off. That's in the extras. He's spotted over Newfoundland uh, several hours later. It's the last time he's spotted. That goes out in the newspaper extras because we have shortwave spotterships. And for the, I believe, for the first time in American history. We have a simultaneous universal experience, coast to coast, because everybody now is bound by the interconnectedness of electronic media. Uh, And we're especially bound by the fact when he flies over the Atlantic, there's no news. So all day that Friday, people are looking at each other on the streets and saying, any news about Lindbergh? Any news about Lindbergh? Families all over America are offering a prayer at dinner time for uh, the safety of Charles Lindbergh. And I think what made this so intense for people at the time is like I said, it was totally unanticipated. And anytime, the first, anytime something's the first time, it's always going to be more of an impact. And people weren't prepared for this binding experience uh, that was media connected. So uh, after the vigil uh, across the Atlantic, he spotted off the coast of Ireland. And it looks like this impossible, unbelievable event. Uh, A man flying solo New York to Paris. Uh, And everybody thought he was going to die, by the way. Uh, Because uh, others had had already. Yeah. uh, uh, Two weeks before, two French flyers, Nungassay and Collie had uh, taken off in the other direction, Paris to New York, and they just disappeared. No, nope. And they were experienced World War One flyers, uh, heroes of France. Uh, so that this 25-year-old guy who, you know, had been, you know, flying postal uh, uh, aerial flights, uh, it, it, you know, who comes out of nowhere and is the sentimental favorite, uh, everybody thought he was a courageous young man, but that this was a reckless, foolhardy thing that could... Really, never happened. That was the smart money. So when he's spotted over Ireland, and it looks like he's going to make the final difficult leg, uh, people are just electric. And you might have seen the famous newsreel pictures of the landing at La Field outside of Paris, where mobs of Frenchmen just go crazy. Uh, you know, they run towards this plane. And in terms of the his response to the media, at least initially. He plays it absolutely perfectly with a kind of natural grace and uh, decency that make Americans love him even more. Uh, the first thing he does when he gets to France is uh, meets with the, uh, 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 the mother of one of the lost pilots. Uh, and this endears the French to him uh, or endears him to the French even more. Then he goes to Belgium. Lays a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier. The Belgians fall in love with him. He goes to uh, England, uh, you know, speaks to the Parliament. The British fall in love with him. Now Limburg, being Limburg, wants to fly back to America over Russia, <laughs> but there's no way that Kelvin Coolidge, the president, is going to entrust the national hero to Soviet airspace. He orders Limburg to take a ship back. He sends a special ship to pick up Limburg Lind- in England. And uh, he uh, sails back to America. And uh, the nation in, you, know, you know this is a couple of weeks later, the nation goes crazy uh, when he arrives. Uh, all of Washington is decked out to uh, see and hear Lindbergh because he's going to speak for the first time to the sound newsreels. Uh, every politician in Washington wants their picture taken next to this gallant young lad. And then New York, which is angry at Washington because they get the first shot at Lindbergh's welcome decides, and this is so typical of New Yorkers, right? They decide they'll just pretend that Washington didn't happen. And Lindbergh's real greeting will be from New Yorkers. And they give him that famous ticket tape parade down Broadway, which is the largest ticket tape parade in history to this day. Uh, So the place just goes, you know, bananas for Lindbergh. And that's the way it is for the next couple of years he's in the papers that you know everything he does is covered avidly by the press
0: yeah of course actually the thing is as you said pictures from the newsreels one of the things i did after i read that particular section of the book i started deep diving youtube you know it's unbelievable yeah. how much material the good thing and we'll talk we can talk about this later about there's very little radio coverage left because they weren't recording but there's still a lot of yeah. newsreel materials out there that, about this whole not only the the flight but also the later kidnapping and uh trial so we do yeah. have a lot of that just to look at in fact i started a deep dive into not not even knowing that there was a recording of audio recording of coolidge yeah watched that one and then discovered all the other presidents prior to who, coolidge that actually were recorded so <laughs> mm-hmm. it's one of those weird yeah. media things that would that interests me and i would and and, and so, that's sort of one of the uh, you
1: know the great things about film is people tend to say film and uh because Lindbergh is also this amazingly cinemagetic character i mean you look at him he looks like gary cooper mm-hmm. you know tall slender handsome uh Yeah, he's perfect for the newsrails, you know, this is sort of that. And, you know, the gallant profile uh, with his uh, flight cap on uh, is, uh, you know, uh, being handsome never hurts. And the the fact that he looked like this tall, thin frontier hero propelled into the age of aviation uh, only makes him more of a media sensation uh, visually.
0: Obviously, then we, we first see Lindbergh as a hero. And uh, as you point out, you know, everybody lived through him vicariously. Of course, he later gets married, which was uh, covered like a royal wedding in many ways. Yeah. And, yeah. And a as royal a, courtship. You know, hundreds
1: of thousands of American girls uh, sigh in envy in 1929 when he marries uh, uh, Anne, uh, Anne Murrow, who's uh, one of the daughters of a very wealthy uh, diplomat businessman, uh, Dwight Murrow. And uh, she It's kind of interesting, like a lot of three girl families, King Lear can tell you this. Uh, You know, there's sort of the pretty one, the reckless one and the quiet one. And Anne was the quiet bookish one and uh, who turns out in her own right just to be a fabulous life partner, a major literary artist and a a terrific pilot. Uh, We all remember Amelia Earhart, but uh, as a uh, kind of the aviatrix uh, so-called of the of the age Uh, But uh, Anne was every bit as much a uh, uh, heroic pioneering uh, female pilot. Uh, Lindbergh teaches, uh, they get married in 29. Uh, He teaches her to fly. And they go on these amazing flights uh, to uh, track some of the initial uh, airplane routes uh, across uh, uh, the Pacific and into Asia. And she's the uh, co-pilot, navigator, and radio man. For these uh for these very dangerous and pioneering flights uh so uh she gets married uh, they get married in 29 and then of course everybody's waiting for uh the princeling who who you know they're waiting for the child and uh in uh 1930 the uh uh, uh the child is born uh, uh charles augustus Lindbergh, uh jr and uh he looks just like his father, and, and uh, everybody calls him Little Lindy or the Little Eaglet. There are Tin Pan Alley songs written about him, and uh, it seems to be this perfect fairy tale of uh, Charles, our prince, and his uh, princess Anne, and uh, the heir apparent,
0: Little Lindy. And of course, um, during this period, um, we can start. To, I want to talk start to talk a little bit about the actual media. Pieces the parts and pieces parts together. Uh, so obviously, his early coverage we talked about newsreels and and such. But even in this period, the uh, newspapers were still king. Oh yeah. Uh, and let's I want to talk about this because I think sometimes when we talk about media history, um, sometimes people have a tend to remember. Think of what the way things are now, and they say, well, newspapers are biased, and all these other things are are so-called fake news. But back in this period of time, newspapers were, there were so many of them, and uh, they did all kinds of things to try to earn readership. Mm -hmm. What uh, kind of situation, what was going on in this period in the newspapers that this particular case would end up being so important to them?
1: Well, uh, the the newspapers, of course, in America had been around in their modern form, at least since the 1830s or 40s, with the establishment of the great uh, New York tabloids and uh, the great age of yellow journalism in the late 19th century. And by the mid 1920s, uh, you have, uh, uh, say, in New York, you have 12 uh, major English language dailies, Mm -hmm. Uh, that you can choose from, depending upon your politics or your level of education. Of course, there are kind of respectable broadsheets like the uh, New York Times and the New York Herald Tribune, and uh, then the uh, the New York uh, the tabloids like the New York Post and the uh, and the Daily News. Uh, and also, and this is really key in terms of solidifying a universal kind of experience. Uh, you have three syndicated news services that are kind of analogous to the the big three television networks and the golden age of television, the way ABC, CBS, and NBC dominated the network news at uh, 630. Uh, You you have uh, um, the Associated Press, the United Press, and the International News Service, uh, which uh, make news, whether you're in Iowa City or Los Angeles or New York, you're basically, you can read the same kind of news on a uh, uh, a given story. And of course you have, uh, these, you know, wonderful collection by the late twenties and early thirties of syndicated, uh, columnists, uh, maybe some that your listeners know would be like Will Rogers, who was an ascendant character. Uh, he had a, a Will Rogers says a column you could read anywhere in America. Uh, and uh, columnists like Arthur Brisbane or Walter Winchell. And I can read them whether I live in Iowa City uh, or New York, which means you have this universal journalistic literary experience from coast to coast. Uh, So then, and uh, you have extra editions, which is if there's breaking news, like during the Lindbergh flight in uh, 1927, uh, the newspapers are basically continuously Running uh, uh, stories off the presses every couple hours, uh, every few hours, uh, to give updates. And when he lands in uh, Paris, the news is out within
0: uh, thirty-five minutes on the streets of New York. Right. Right. I still remember. Now this was back in the day when we used to have. I mean, you know, I've. I remember I lived in Cleveland, and you know we had three newspapers, and then eventually we only had two, and then the press. Ended up publishing in the afternoons, and of course, the idea of an afternoon newspaper is something no one would even consider these days. But it was the place, and they often had multiple editions, as you pointed right. out. Uh, so, like, we had an early afternoon edition, and then at six o'clock would be the the late edition, and that's where sometimes that's where you found your news. Still, even in the 70s, I remember during Watergate. Yeah. rushing to look at the news box to see, okay, what's the headline on the late edition of the Cleveland press to find out what's the latest thing of what's going on, even in a period where television and radio were, were, were there. So. Uh, uh, it, right. And of course,
1: and, uh, there's a whole vernacular of the newspaper business that we've lost, uh, because newspapers don't play that central role in our, uh, our media life anymore. Uh, but there was something uh, you mentioned the, uh, uh, the late afternoon or early evening. The last edition uh, was called the Bulldog, and that came out like at eleven o'clock. And so, if there was a story you were really concerned about, uh, you know, Dad might walk to the corner newsstand and buy the last edition of the day, uh, the so-called Bulldog uh, edition. Uh, so, yeah, there's this amazing tradition of uh, journalists, and uh, if if your uh, listeners know. Uh, movies like *The Front Page* or the the, dis, the famous distaff version uh, with Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant called uh, *His Girl Friday*. Right. Uh, that's pretty much the uh, not an inaccurate uh, view of the kind of the frenzy and the competition of uh, journalists in the glory days of uh, urban urban newspapers in the twenties uh, and early thirties. We took it all.
0: Uh, we talked about columnists, but then there were the gossip columnists who right. obviously become very important to this story as well. Yeah, yeah, and and I can talk about one the yeah. most
1: famous of them if you
0: want. But. Sure, because I think that the gossip columnists in your discussion in the book, I think, are come through the most interestingly to me personally because of of the fact that there were just like we had competing newspapers, you had competing columnists, including gossip columnists. Yeah, right. Uh, but it might
1: be useful, you know, first to lead you into the the kidnapping itself, okay. because one of the things I had to do in the book, Joel, was first, and we've already done that in our conversation, is to kind of recapture who Lindbergh was and the ascendancy of this character, and then the second thing uh, is to tell the true crime story without getting totally bogged down in the rabbit hole that is the uh, the Lindbergh case. Uh, one uh, uh, historian of the case has called it the uh, uh, the story the, the case that never ends uh, because it's it's just this perennially fascinating, unbelievable story uh, and a tragic story as well. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book is never forget that uh, in the end, this is a story about a murdered baby, a twenty-month-year-old child, uh, and try to not to get distracted by the kind of glib cons- sensationalism that you can sometimes get uh, drawn in. But the story itself is just so uh, unbelievable. You can see why it attracts so, so much attention, maybe even if it ha- the victim hadn't been the most beloved man on the planet. Uh, and that is on the night of May 1st, 1932, somebody sneaks into the second floor nursery of the Limburg estate in Hopewell, New Jersey, and uh, takes the baby from his crib sometime between the hours of 8 and 10 uh, that night. Uh, the news breaks almost immediately. Uh, by 11.03, the uh, AP has the, the first story on the wires, 11.03 that evening. And uh, the nation goes you know, bananas in terms of its interest with this. There's uh, obsessive interest in what everybody labels the crime of the century immediately hmm. because, uh, you know, the baby of the most beloved man has uh, been kidnapped. And from March 1st, of 1932, until the baby's body is discovered on May 12th, 1932, uh, it's the only story in America. And in tracking this story, you know, one of the things I found interesting is when, after the baby's kidnapped, nobody really believes that the child is going to be slain, that the baby's dead. Everybody just assumes that this is going to be a kind of, you know, normal criminal business transaction and that the ransom will be coughed up. The baby will be returned. And then we'll all start looking for the, uh, the perpetrators. Uh, It's not on anybody's radar that the child could be slain. Uh, You sometimes see reading between the lines in the coverage That the reporters don't even want to entertain that possibility, although they know as rational journalists, they kind of have to. But, uh, you know, city fathers in various cities across America actually make preliminary plans to celebrate the return of the Lindbergh baby. You know, church bells are going to ring and fire engines will go through the streets to celebrate this great uh, uh, return. So when the baby's body is found, there's this insupportable, you know, grief and shock followed a nanosecond later with this anger and this, uh, you know, need for vengeance. Uh, It's made all the more acute because by 1932, we have the medium that is forever after going to be the, uh, the real transmission belt for instantaneous information which is radio. And then, of course, later television and then later our digital forms of communication. But in 1932, radio has reached a level of penetration in the population that we can now turn to radio to get instantaneous news in March of 1932. And it's really the first time in media history where we shift allegiances from the newspaper to broadcasting technology it's the first time that people reach for the dial instead of going down to the corner newsstand to get the news and the reason is we have radios in our living rooms now and also this is the first time we have a news story that we want to know the story now we don't want to wait two hours for the press to start rolling we want the up-to-date information on the Lindbergh baby. And we can get that through radio broadcasting.
0: It's one of those things that uh, we think about instantaneous news. And the average person, the younger person today, probably couldn't understand, definitely doesn't really completely understand the idea that you didn't always know something right away. And depending on how far back you're willing to go, it could take hours, minutes, days, years, months to find out something because that's the way information traveled but nowadays I mean literally starting with the telegraph is the way, that's always what I consider to be the initial technology that starts things along but uh, by this point like you say radios, uh, you you talk about it in the book how they became less, you know how they went down in price and people started buying them and they just became a normal part of of households uh, even in a period where quite frankly And we're talking about, uh, you know, we're in the depression now, so uh, yet this is something that uh, has become more, becomes more and more important to people.
1: And, uh, you know, just to pick up on what you were saying about the instantaneousness of it, uh, and this is a a difficult concept for people under a certain age to uh, understand, is that uh, radio, like television initially, actually went off the air like at midnight or one o'clock, depending upon your market, and you had dead air all through the early uh, morning hours up until, say, six or seven o'clock the next morning. There was nothing. The transmitters were turned off. And then they took like 20 or 30 minutes to warm up the next morning. The, the need for the Lindbergh news was so great and the appetite for it so insatiable that the, the networks, for the first time in their history, kept the transmitters on all night. Now, even if they didn't have programming, they kept them on in case there were some breaking news to announce. Right, and so it's it's in a way the first twenty four seven broadcast coverage
0: that we've had in our history uh, because of the Lindbergh case. And of course, probably the modern examples would be uh, all the you know the cancellation of advertising and nonstop news during the Kennedy assassination, and then of yes. course what cable and and other broadcast com- companies do. Uh, during nine eleven, I mean, these are—they're uh, probably the closest where you get into making major changes into the way you cover something for the first time, and uh, the Lindbergh yeah. kidnapping was clearly the the major change for radio.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think you mentioned earlier that you know, radio, out of all the media you cover. Uh, print or uh, newsreels. You usually have some uh, so-called primary documents when you're dealing with uh, newspapers, of course, because you mm-hmm. can get them on microfilm and now on a lot of them are available and searchable on the web. And newsreels, which you can find at archives or as uh, you just noted, uh, they're uh, sort of retrievable on uh, YouTube. Radio is the most difficult of all the uh, media to, uh, to cover, especially before you had uh, audio tape. In the uh, in the late 1940s, uh, if you wanted to record something off the air, you had to uh, do this very cumbersome process called a transcription disc. And of course, news was ephemeral. Who wants to listen to news, you know, a week after the story? Uh, so even though maybe entertainment shows would have been uh, recorded on transcription disc, uh, news almost never was. So one of the frustrations I had is. I couldn't listen to the original announcements of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping on radio uh, or the commentary on it uh, or the discussion. I had to rely on uh, uh, transcriptions or written transcriptions if I could find them. And even those, there aren't a lot of those because, you know, why write this stuff down Uh, or uh, contemporary reports on them? And uh, I had to uh, contemporary reports are always better than retrospective memories, because people's memories get a little fuzzy as uh, time goes on. So uh, especially for 32, uh, I had to rely on secondary sources. Uh, one of the real uh, sort of uh, signposts of this is in the late 1940s, uh, the famous uh, journalist Edward R. Murrow and his producer friend Fred Friendly uh, put together uh, uh, a pretty well-known collection of radio's greatest hits. I called hear it, it, it now. now
0: oh hear it yeah, now
1: I mean, hear it now right uh, uh, and then see it now will be its television uh, descendant
0: uh, uh, and I'm thinking uh, of the records that they came out with called uh, I can hear it now of which exactly that's that's what I'm talking about yeah too. because I actually uh, have got I've got you the had those? sitting right around my right, right <laughs> the old lp 3 lp disks Three LP oh, set. Right. I actually have it in in my office, and I have it in my office too. But you notice the
1: there's one of the discs is devoted to uh, I think 1919 to right. 1932. There's nothing about Lindbergh on those discs. You no? Know?
0: right. Because and, all, and even the stuff that's on there, as you point out in the book, uh, um, they're they're actually just uh, actors reenacted a lot a lot of this stuff. And so
1: if uh, if Murrow couldn't find it in his archive. Which had the best of the uh, uh, the archives of the major broadcasting uh, companies in 1948. You know, it ain't there, <laughs> uh, and because uh, it would have been on that record if they had had any uh, extent materials. Uh, so that was a source of frustration uh, of of not being able to capture the uh, you know the, just the pivotal importance of uh, this radio and having to rely on secondary sources to. We we capture the kind of electricity of those bulletins. And in fact, the word bulletin is uh, a kind of coinage of that radio era. Uh, And I think with Lindbergh, you also, you mentioned the Kennedy assassination or 9-11. It's also one of the first times that we have this sort of, you know, disorienting vertiginous sense that you can get with media when you're going from kind of ordinary, regular, mundane, banal programming, a soap opera, you know, a music show, whatever. And then this voice breaks in with this tragic or, and sometimes really history-changing news. Like with Pearl Harbor, you're listening to a symphony on a Sunday morning and the news of the attack comes and you know your life is going to be changed. And the announcement of the Lindbergh baby's death that evening on radio was one of the first times people felt that that you're listening to a soap opera music and then this voice comes in with this this dreadful news and then sometimes of course it goes back to the original programming because you don't have all the news and and you have that kind of bizarre sense of uh you know the mundane with the uh with the tragic uh and uh there are a lot of vivid descriptions of that moment and uh The uh, cultural historian Frederick Lewis Allen says that uh, many people whose memories of the 1930s are otherwise vague remember exactly where they were and when they first heard the news of the uh,
0: the death of Bloomberg baby. Yeah, we see that with a lot of the news coverage of Kennedy where in that first 30 minutes or so, CBS, for example, was head of soap opera and Cronkite would break in and then they'd go back to the soap opera, and then he'd break in, and then they went back to the soap opera again, and then finally, and he wasn't even on camera for the early period, because as you pointed out, back then, technology, even in the 60s, they had to warm up the cameras. They couldn't yeah, just and, and turn they didn't have on. a live,
1: isn't that amazing, uh, they didn't have a live camera ready to go. So. yeah and, anyway. and 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 that's the vertiginous sense you right. have because he breaks in with the bulletin you have the title card that says bulletin and then you go back to like a, a coffee commercial I think and also right. uh th- this pendulum of the world turning or so uh, you know what uh, as the world turns and it's just so weird uh as uh, you know that moment uh and
0: one of the first times was with the uh the Limburg baby right so then, the third item or the third method <clears throat> that we want to talk about, and this is where the film part for me comes in, but is the newsreel, yeah, uh, which again is something that nowadays people don't even, I mean, re- even radio and newspapers have a, a modern, uh, are still around at least in some form or another. But newsreels were an unusual method, and and you talk about. Their, int- their introduction, and the fact that they weren't even early on covered by the same First Amendment rights as uh, newspapers were.
1: Yeah, the newsreels are a fascinating part of the 20th century uh, media history story. And it's remarkable more work is not done on the newsreels uh, because of how pivotal they were uh, for the news of the day and also for our memory of the news. Because anytime you do a documentary on the 20th century, of course, you're Kind of on spooling those, uh, the, those newsreels. And so, at, at, and you know, I'm, I'm glad you're interested in them, Joel, because uh, they've always fascinated me. Uh, there were five commercial newsreels, and uh, they were issued by the major Hollywood studios uh, twice a week, about eight to 10 minutes in length. And typically they were shown at the top of what exhibitors called the, uh, the balance program or the motion picture bill. So if I were going to kind of a platonic ideal evening out at the movies in 1932, I would see a newsreel, about eight minutes, uh, a cartoon, probably exactly seven minutes and uh, a comedy short or a travel log of 12 to 15 minutes. Then I would see my feature film and sometimes a B movie uh, along with the feature film Uh, and uh, the newsreels. Uh, were kind of the way for the studio to wave the flag. And even though they didn't have First Amendment rights, because film wasn't given First Amendment rights of any kind until 1952. In 1915, there had been a famous Supreme Court case that said, and this is really unbelievable, that movies were, quote, a business pure and simple. And as a business, they could be regulated the same way that the Food and Drug Administration regulated uh, the quality of meat products across state lines. So New York had a censor board, Chicago had a censor board that uh, cut and banned feature films. And they could theoretically do the same with the newsreels. But some states actually exempted the newsreels from censorship because even though they didn't have first amendment rights, they were close enough to journalism in their format to kind of be granted a conditional sense of, you know, journalistic prerogative. But because they were shown in theaters, they also had to be entertaining. So they were always kind of this hybrid bastard medium between, uh, you know, frivolous human interest stuff, uh, that, uh, you know, the news would play, uh, you know, a a guy, you know, uh, uh, imitating a duck or playing duck music on his hands, you know, this entertaining stuff with the news of the day, uh, which was almost invariably, uh, you know toned down you didn't want to really disturb people during the great depression before the cartoon the feature film uh the one exception is crime uh, because we in america love crime and you can always give a crime does not pay message so the newsreels on the night on uh, the night of march 1st uh the newsreel editors and cameramen are kind of rusted from bed or speakeasies and they shoot out to hopewell uh, new jersey to the scene of the crime and they arrive, uh, you know, around early morning hours, and they can't do anything until the sun comes up, right? Because the cameras aren't sensitive enough. And they start filming uh, uh, the uh, the scene at Hopewell. The Lindberghs will not give an on-camera interview. They will not plead on camera for the uh, uh, the baby's release. But one of the cameramen asked Charles whether he happens to have any home movies of uh, Little Lindy. And, uh, Charles remembers that he does. his, uh, his brother-in-law had taken some movies of the baby uh, on his first birthday. They, uh, the newsreels get the film. they blow it up from sixteen to thirty five millimeter. and it's in the motion picture theaters in New York and Newark that same night, that is the night of March second, the very next night after the uh, the kidnapping, as a kind of all points bulletin. And the newsreel announcers, you know, show the footage. They express the anger of the american people uh, there are reports of people especially women seeing you know the innocent child and weeping in the theaters uh, when they uh, when they get the news that the baby has been uh, kidnapped and it's the first time that uh home movie footage amateur footage is incorporated into the newsreels
0: so as you, you, you gave us a pretty good introduction as to how a newsreel had to be created as part of just, you know, and it, obviously it was going to be the least able to be as current as possible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but they, especially I, once you get out of New York where obviously they're being produced or wherever they're being produced, those areas will get them quickly and then it takes time for them to, 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 to be distributed. But, um, uh, the the idea of the visual part that uh newsreels ended up becoming that would eventually be replaced by television yeah. uh but just the idea that there was another way to see the events and, and... right you
1: you can see it and experience it on the big uh, the big screen now so the newsreels couldn't compete with radio for instantaneous news of the co- uh they couldn't compete with the print press for the kind of comprehensiveness of right. coverage and the sort of a complicated explanation of the narrative of the case but they could give you these powerful images and especially the home movie footage of the babies that right. that, that was their signature scoop in 1932 that none of the other uh, media had and in fact the the newspapers publish the frame enlargements from the newsreel home movies uh in uh in 1932 yeah uh, I, re- I i recently
0: yeah. interviewed joseph clark who just Put out a book called News Parade, oh, the yeah. american yeah, I, and the A, a very Reserve.
1: admirable book. Yeah, I, I just, I, of course, I gobbled that up when it came out. It came out too late for me to exploit in my book. I think right. my book was already in press by the time uh, Joseph Clark's book had come out.
0: So. The other thing, though, and, and I know we, this story is so complex, but newsreels ended up getting a, a special dispensation, so to speak, when the trial comes along. Yeah. Uh, they were actually able to present to, to film uh, in the courtroom and in the court building. Yeah, that's a bizarre story. Uh, and we might
1: want to back up a little now. Yeah, uh, there's so much to this before story. Get, yes, before, yeah, before getting to 35, uh, right. but just I quickly, uh, because from March 1st to uh, May 12th, uh, 1932, uh, when the babies have uh, been kidnapped and before the body has been discovered, there's some bizarre stuff going on behind the scenes. And all the press is keeping quiet on this because... Everybody is terrified that if they publish the wrong story or if they, you know, release a piece of news, it will jeopardize the safety of the baby. And and here's where the kind of the front page image might not be as, uh, as sort of accurate as uh, it wasn't uh, as things really were in 1932. Because I was a little surprised to see or to or to read that when the reporters are uh, remembering this case. And even at the time, they're saying, uh, I know we're usually scoop-hungry scoundrels who do anything for us (laughs) for a good story. (laughs) But in this case, not. In this case, it was about a baby of a man we all loved and admired. And we all just wanted the baby to get back safely. And we would have sacrificed a scoop for getting the baby back safely. Uh, And you can be a little cynical about that. But I think it's also good not to be too cynical, uh, you know. One uh, reporter said this was a case that you know gripped us all by the heart. It wasn't just another excuse for a scoop. So they're keeping quiet on the remarkable, bizarre behind-the-scenes negotiations that are going on for the baby. At this point, this bizarre, eccentric character enters uh, the story. A, a fellow named John C. Condon who was a, uh, a septuagenarian retired school teacher in the Bronx and a local character. Uh, Condon uh, puts an ad in the paper, a uh, letter uh, to the editor of his uh, local Bronx newspaper, offering himself as the intermediary in the Limburg case. And bizarrely, the next morning, he gets a response from the kidnapper himself. Uh, we're pretty sure that it's the authentic kidnapper because the kidnapper left a ransom note in the Limburg nursery with a special odd symbol on it, so uh, his uh, he could be identified as the authentic kidnapper, and the note to Condon had that symbol. Now, uh, Condon gets in touch with the uh, uh immediately, uh, talks to the Limburg's lawyer, uh, goes out to the Limburg estate that very night, and the uh, uh, the Limburg lawyer is a little suspicious of this oddball character, uh, because it is a you know, a, a life risking offer to uh, be the intermediary in a uh, ransom case. And he's wondering what Condon's going to get out of this. And uh, Condon said, well, I do want one thing. And the uh, the lawyer says, uh, now it's coming. And uh, Condon says that I want to be the man who takes little Lindy and puts him back in his mother's arms. And so you either believe Condon is the real deal or not. Uh, and I tend to believe he is the uh, eccentric but uh authentic personality uh he seems to be uh condon makes contact with the kidnapper and in one of these sort of hollywood-like moments in the case he meets the kidnapper in a a cemetery in the bronx uh and uh talks to him uh for like about an hour uh and he gets a good look at the guy he kind of hears a german accent uh and they sort of make preliminary arrangements to uh, get proof of life, or at least proof that the kidnapper has the baby. Uh, a few days later, they get uh, the baby's uh, uh, night, uh, night uh, clothes, little uh, uh, baby uh, jumper suit. And uh, then he uh, makes another arrangement for uh, the ransom exchange proper. And on this, Lindbergh comes along. He drives the car, because Condon's a non-driver, waits outside, again, another cemetery, as the ransom is exchanged. And the kidnapper tells Condon that the baby is uh, in a boat off the coast of uh, Martha's Vineyard and uh, that uh, the couple that has the baby doesn't know that it's the Lindbergh baby, et cetera. And it's a total wild goose chase. Uh, The kidnapper takes the ransom money and uh, there's no baby. And then a couple weeks later, the baby's body is found. Uh, Now for about two and a half years, There are no breaks in the case at all. Uh, However, the Department the Treasury Department has taken the precaution of uh, and I don't know how much into the weeds you want to get here, Joel,
0: but what basically they marked the bills if or the bills were written down. I mean, I know that yeah. this is such an intricate story. There's so many different stories that come together in this. So,
1: right. And, uh, you, and one of the, the, the things I had to do in the book is sort of not go down every rabbit hole. And if you're a, a limber kidnapping case obsessive, you'll probably say, uh, Oh, Oh, you forgot to mention the, uh, you know, the, the, the baby's thumb guard that was found on the, you know, the Lindbergh estate uh, on well, April and you 2nd. you barely 19th. talk
0: about Isidore Frisch in
1: the book. I mean, Yeah. Yeah. That because it's in, in a way, it's. I, I just need to tell people enough about the crime so they'll understand the media story. But the crime stuff is uh, is fascinating. And one of the things that fa- that's fascinating that the newspapers and the radio and the newsreels do is get into the sort of the forensic minutiae of the case, because there's no smoking gun. There's no eyewitness that's seen uh, the uh, the kidnapper in the second floor nursery. There are no fingerprints. Uh, It's all this train of uh, excruciatingly detailed circumstantial evidence, which in the end leads to this sort of uh, central casting villain named Bruno Richard Hauptmann, who in September of 1934 passes one of the ransom notes to a gas station attendant. And uh, the gas station attendant feels a little hinky about the exchange. And as the car is driving off, he writes the license plate down on the ransom bill. And when the bill is turned into the bank, the banker gets a hit and they realize they have the, you know, the central suspect in the Lindbergh kidnapping case. And they arrest Bruno Richard Hauptmann uh, the next day after the, uh, uh, they make the connection with the, uh, with the bank note. And, uh, he's a illegal German immigrant, uh, dour man, uh, uh former, uh, g- German machine gunner, a, uh, an ex-con in Germany. So he's, he's just perfect for the, uh, uh, for the rap and plus which they find tens of thousands of dollars of the ransom money in his garage. Uh, so if you're, uh, if you believe that, uh, Houtman was railroaded. You kind of have to explain away a lot of circumstantial evidence. I think, for uh, just to, to, to for my book to be written about the media, I've accepted what I think is the consensus view in the Lindbergh case, which is that Bruno Richard Houtman did it. Uh, of course, people will can dispute that, and there's a volumes that have been written on this. Uh, at least one F hbo tv movie and if you go on the web you can go down uh alice in wonderland rabbit holes that will you know take you probably further than you ever, ever want to go
0: of course we're looking uh, but, at it as a current event and during that period especially once they had Hauptman, there wasn't any real discussion of alternatives at the time
1: no uh and uh, today the smart money says that Hauptman was centrally involved he probably did it alone but People at the time, and I think you know, even people like me who believe that Hauptmann uh, uh, did the kidnapping, uh, will concede the point that there might have been a uh, an accomplice in this uh, because there are just so many unlikely coincidences. You know, every you know, you know detectives will tell you that every crime case has have these you know bizarre, stranger than fiction uh, uh, pathways. That you couldn't get away with in a Hollywood screenplay, but that happened in real life. And the Lindbergh case has more than its share of those. Uh, so Haltman's captured uh, in September 34. Uh, we want to put him in the electric chair, and we can't do that in New York because our only evidence in New York is the extortion of the ransom money. So he's extradited to New Jersey, where uh, if uh, we can convict, uh, if we can put Haltman in the baby's nursery, we uh, we can uh, convict him under New Jersey law of a capital crime, uh, the com- uh, the uh, commission of a, uh, or the uh, a death that results from the commission of a burglary. So we can place Hauptmann in, in the electric chair uh, under New Jersey law, which, of course, we all want to do. And on January 2nd, 1935, the crime of the century gives way to the trial of the century.
0: And of course, the media is
1: all over it the, the uh. media descends in force Troll. uh the uh every reporter worth a dime and every and, and even a good many novelists and commentators come down to uh to a uh, flemington to get their syndicated byline uh you know everybody's there but and so i read a lot of the coverage of the the print coverage of the case and you can't talk about everybody so the, the person I focused on, because uh, I think she really gives the best coverage uh, of, of the case, uh, 1,500 words a day on deadline for six weeks, a woman named Adela Rogers St. John's. Mm-hmm. And she was just stone nailed. Uh, she's in the courtroom right behind Helpman. And uh, she is a, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, if you've ever seen the uh, His Girl Friday, she's basically Hilde Johnson. Uh, the character played by uh, Rosalind Russell. And she brings a wealth of expertise to the case. Her father was a guy named Earl Rogers, who was one of the best uh, courtroom lawyers uh, of his time in San Francisco. Uh, And from the age of eight, she sat in the back of the court and watched your father at work. So she has a real legal expertise on the best way to run a murder trial. I mean, she's been looking at this, uh, for uh, something like thirty years, she's also a one of Hearst, uh, one of the best journalists for William Randolph Hearst, uh, and have been working for him since the uh, the nineteen teens. And uh, she's uh, got uh, when the uh, trial happens, she's got a pretty plushy job as a Hollywood screenwriter by then. But you get the sense that she's just waiting by the phone for Hearst to call her up and say, "I need you to cover." the trial of the century and she's she leaves skid marks you know from hollywood you know to be where the action is with all her old uh hard-bitten reporter uh friends and then the third card that she has besides the legal expertise the journalistic chops is she's a mother uh she uh you know adored her sons and uh she can sort of what at the time they were called sob sisters. And these were the women who were assigned to basically uh, wrench tears from the uh, housewives reading the tabloid papers. And uh, Adela Rogers, St. John's was, she said she was never ashamed to be called a sob sister because she thought you should be emotionally involved in a story and a particularly a story like this. So uh, I devote a lot of time to the, uh, uh, the scene when Ann Morrow Lindbergh is on the stand the most heartbreaking moment of the trial by far and she's uh, fondling her baby's night suit uh identifying the, the last clothes she saw the baby wear and adela roger st john's is heartbreaking when she describes this scene and you just know that in uh you know breakfast nooks across america people reading adela roger st john's are, are kind of you know weeping into their coffee as they're reading this account of. Uh, And identifying the body, uh, the the baby's clothes, and she she just was an extraordinary reporter of this case.
0: And of course, at the same time, the radio people, during every break possible, would get any kind of information out of the courtroom and go on get uh, back onto radio. And um, you were one of the things I think you talk about is that they actually did reenactments on the radio of the trial. Am I right? Am I yeah, right? right. Yeah. Because the radio was forbidden uh, from covering the trial,
1: which was, uh, the governor announced that early on cause he did, you know, he said he didn't want a circus atmosphere. Uh, although radio probably could have covered the, uh, the trial fairly unobtrusively with, you know, they could have just mic'd it and, and broadcast it live. Uh, But uh, he, you know, the governor didn't want that. Uh, So the radio made do with bulletins, with reenactments. And uh, anybody who's, uh, you know, watched the the, uh, uh, cable coverage of the OJ case knows uh, with expert lawyers sort of giving their talking head opinions. Uh, And we actually do have some uh, live radio broadcast of that. Uh, And especially uh, the guy we have, in fact, is a very well-known lawyer at the time named Samuel Leibowitz, who was uh, famous for a lot of criminal cases, uh, probably most famous at the time for his uh, defense of the Scottsboro Boys, a group of African-American kids and young people who uh, had been uh, uh, accused of uh, raping a couple of uh, white women in Scottsboro, Alabama. So he's a very high-profile attorney, kind of, kind of you know, F. Lee Bailey, uh, Alan Dershowitz of his time, and uh, he gave nightly uh, comment uh, commentating on the uh, case. And these uh, discs were discovered uh, in the, uh, I think the uh, a uh, by the uh, the children had them, and uh, I listened to those at the Paley Center in New York. Uh, so we have kind of a a nightly recap from the best lawyer of the age. Uh, Talking about the uh, the trial strategy of the uh, of the case,
0: and of course this comes back now to what I was what I mentioned about newsreels and the fact that they were trying their best to present coverage as well, and also used expert witnesses and experts yeah. and such, and then actually had footage from within, you know, within the courtroom.
1: Yeah. Now, oddly, the judge, a guy named Justice Trenchard. Uh, and by all accounts, uh, a, a really fair, dignified jurist in what could have been like the sensational, bizarre case. He wasn't like Lanceto. He really kept a uh, of the OJ case. He really kept the lid on the uh, uh, the sensation to the best of his uh, ability and got high marks from both sides and from the press at the time for his uh, conduct of a very difficult uh, case. He allows the newsreels to into the courtroom Uh And maybe he did that because the governor had sort of said radio can't get in and the justice wanted to show that, you know, I'm the king of my courtroom. But he let the newsreels in with the stipulation that they not turn the cameras on while there was actual testimony going on or while the judge was officiating from the bench. So during breaks in the trial, they could film crowd scenes in the gallery and interview people in a a law library that was adjacent to the courtroom. But the camera uh, in the courtroom, they had a, uh, three cameras, one in the law library, one uh, sort of a, a hand-mounted camera or a handheld camera uh, uh, on the first floor. And then in the balcony of the courtroom, they had a stationary uh, 35 millimeter camera shooting. And the deal, as I said, which the newsreels agreed to, was they wouldn't film during live testimony. The newsreels being the newsreels, uh, they uh, when Hauptmann. Gets to the stand for the kind of the climactic moment of the trial, which is the accused killer of the Lindbergh baby is going to uh, testify in his own defense, and there will be a blistering cross examination uh, by uh, the, the uh, district attorney, David Wilentz of uh, New Jersey, who, of course, wants to you know, have the dramatic confrontation and have you know, Hauptmann break down in tears and confess. Uh, during that confrontation, it's too irresistible not to film. And the newsreels secretly turn on their cameras and take a lot of footage of Houtman and Wilentz going at it. And they release the footage to the newsreel theaters and uh, to their uh, uh, newsreel arms. Uh, At which point the, uh, the DA and the judge go ballistic. They demand that the newsreels withdraw the footage. And uh, remember there were five newsreels. They're all using the same pool uh, coverage. Three of the newsreels withdraw the, uh, the coverage at the demand of the uh, district attorney in New Jersey, but two don't. Two say, we have the right to cover this. And and so it's a real uh, kind of moment in the assertion of First Amendment motion picture journalism rights for the
0: newsreels. It, it Like I say, there's just this book. I mean, we're only literally scratching the surface of some of the stuff. For example, you have a whole chapter that talks about How films and the whole back and talking about censorship, the back and forth about how whether you could make, you know, making move, not making movies, that kidnapping was a primary uh, part of the plot and how during the pre-code era, a few of them got out because that was during this period. And Mm -hmm. yet it suddenly became a a fight in the uh, in Hollywood as to whether how, if at all, you could use anything related to the concepts in the Lindbergh kidnapping in a movie. Yeah, uh, because it was
1: such a sensitive topic that uh, the motion picture industry didn't want fly-by-night producers and, uh, uh, you know, even desperate studios from exploiting this case, which would then reflect uh, unfavorably on Hollywood. And, of course,
0: Uh, even modern day, um, of course, movies. uh, If you go back to Murder on the Orient Express, which Agatha Christie's book, which has now been made into a film twice. Yeah. Yeah. the Lindbergh kidnapping is thinly disguised at the beginning yeah. as part of the the plot.
1: Yeah, uh, it, it's sort of this deep background that the Lindbergh kidnapping, uh, uh, of course, uh, that book comes out in early 1934, and the kidnapper has not been caught right. yet. So it's a kind of a vicarious uh, literary way for us to uh, wreak vengeance on the kidnapper the Limburg baby because that 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 whole backstory that informs murder on the orient express comes directly out of the, the Limburg kidnapping and of course uh when the uh you know the 12 suspects or whatever it is aboard the orient express uh kill the kidnapper all, you know the, the great plot twist is spoiler alert they all right. did it right uh the detective lets them off because
0: you know we're gonna let off anybody who kills the Limburg baby kidnapper you know yeah, and of course, uh, in the, the, as you point out, since it was before Hauptmann was arrested, uh, or or at least went to trial, they basically uh, Christie basically tried to make it into a gangster who was behind it, which was not completely yeah. out of out of bounds because that was one of the things gangsters were doing. I mean, kidnapping was one of their tricks. And, and in the early days, that's people thought,
1: assumed it had to be professionals, a professional gang, because, you know, he eluded the dragnet, he, you know, committed this audacious crime with a kind of cool efficiency. So initially, uh, people thought that it had to, been, uh, had to have been gangsters. Uh, Walter Winchell, the uh, syndicated columnist, uh, gainsayed that, though, he said, you know, like, if you want to steal a car... You don't steal the mayor's car. Right. You know, you steal somebody else's car because there'll be less heat. And uh, Al Capone famously actually offered his services to try to find the Lindbergh baby because uh, uh, that uh, the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby would even discredit, you know, bootleggers and gangsters. So they didn't want to be associated with it at all.
0: Obviously, you know, we've been talking for over an hour now about this great book and. Next I just used the phrase we scratched the surface there's so much in there but uh, I don't know how easily we can sum up because we can't but in your review I mean what did you did you what new did you learn in, in when you wrote this book or when you were doing your research that maybe you weren't completely aware of that had that added to your overall uh, work in in the book
1: oh, well you know, everybody has their favorite candidate for crime of the century, right? And I had known about the Lindbergh case, but I really didn't know how pivotal it was in terms of the transformation uh, uh, in American law enforcement and in Ameri- in, in the legal system of uh, the sort of legacy of uh, the permanent legacy it, it had because of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Kidnapping becomes a federal crime. Congress passes a law that summer. Uh, under the New Deal, they extend the law and uh, make it a, uh, uh, a, a, a capital offense. Uh, and most important is the New Jersey police bungled the case so badly in terms of the forensic evidence, um, not just by our modern DNA CSI standards, but by the standards of criminal uh, investigation in 1932. They were utterly incompetent and they were seen as incompetent. And who comes into the breach but Jay Hoover, uh, who's ready to federalize law enforcement. And the Lindbergh case kind of gives him his entry into that because we know that we need a central repository of expertise now when there's a complicated case. And crime and law enforcement move kind of from a, a city or a state jurisdiction to a federal jurisdiction, and it it leads to sort of the establish not not the establishment exactly, but just sort of our greater faith in the FBI. When when a crime is serious and complicated, we call in the feds, and that's because of the Lindbergh case.
0: And it's but although it's interesting because you know the Lindbergh law becomes well known for that purpose, although it famously isn't. Every kidnapping case, there there were still specific rules. I go back to the Onion Field case where the one of the people who was involved with it thought that yes. it was automatically a capital crime, which is give, he gives us a reason for why he chose to kill the policeman because he said, "Well, I'm going, you know, it's capital crime already," which it turned out it wasn't at, in, the, yeah. in that particular situation.
1: Yeah, there had to be like a ransom or something. There was right. no ransom uh, uh, negotiated in, right. the, uh, in the case, but lines. it does have those. You know, those legacies and, right. and maybe one of the, the final ones, because it might be a sort of recent in mind, is the uh, some of the literary cultural legacy of the case, too. There have been, you know, a lot of different movies that use the Lindbergh case, either explicitly or as backstory. And uh, two interesting ones that I kind of conclude the book with, which uh, your listeners might be familiar with, is the Philip Roth story uh, the plot against America, which mm-hmm. is uh, kind of a, a counterfactual imagining of what America might be like, had Charles Lindbergh uh, run for president in 1940 on an isolationist, and anti-Semitic platform, which has the Lindbergh case as the deep backstory. It was also the uh, the subject of a uh, of a, uh, a HBO uh, miniseries uh, done by uh, David Simon last uh, last spring, which I liked a lot, but apparently. Uh, didn't do well in the ratings. Uh, and then the other legacy, which is very popular, is the Morris Sendak, where the wild things are. And that little boy in the white sleeping suit is uh, the Limburg baby. Sendak was haunted by the Limburg baby all his life. Uh, as a young boy, he remembered the case uh, growing up in New York and felt traumatized and threatened by it. So it always kind of uh, has been in the shadow of Morris Sendak's uh, you know,
0: wonderful uh, childhood illustrations. Well, as I say, there is so much in the book of that can point you in different directions and people depending on their interests, whether it be true crime or media or radio or, you know, there's just so many different things in there, which I found so fascinating. And every time I said, oh, gee, I wonder if you're going to talk about this. Like I say, the whole section about movies and mm-hmm. how they treated kidnapping, particularly during that period, what and the films that broke the rules, uh, even in... Pre code where there were unwritten rules yeah. about it, and they still broke them. So there, there's just so much as far as three on a match, for example. That's yeah, um, great film and yeah. and other examples. So uh, I know I keep saying this, but there is so much in this book that I hope uh, that we've given enough information to people that they will reach out and uh, and, and and review it and, and read it because there is so much, and and, and I really have to say how much I enjoyed it. Uh, I really appreciate that, Joel. I appreciate you saying that. I'm, I am I. hate to, to... This is probably as good a stopping point as we can find because, like I say, we, we, there is so much. But I do appreciate the amount of time you were able to spend with me about it. Uh, oh, I've, I've enjoyed chatting with you. And I hope that uh, the book continues to do well. And it's got great reviews, which is always helpful. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope that uh, you continue to with your study because every book you've come out with has added to the to the literature of media and popular culture thanks Joel that's deeply appreciated I really really do and thanks for your time today a pleasure you take care sure bye 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 my great thanks to Tom Doherty I hope you found our talk interesting including its continued relevance to how major stories are covered by the media this is Joel Cherney and I will be back soon with more new books and film a podcast series on the New Books Network.